0: Welcome to Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we invite people working in a variety of different fields related to aging and hear their stories. Tune in, either you are considering a career in aging or want to learn more about aging fields or simply want to listen to a stimulating conversation, you will find something you like. Find Voices of Aging on the Radio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Marty DeLima. Dr. DeLima is an interdisciplinary gerontologist and an assistant research professor in the University of Minnesota School of Social Work. She's passionate about supporting long and fulfilling lives for aging citizens, particularly preventing financial abuse. Hi, Dr. DeLima. Thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm very excited for our conversation.
2: Hi, Madeline. Happy to be here.
1: Let's start by having you tell our audience about yourself and where your interests stemmed in gerontology.
2: Sure. So back in the days when I was an undergrad at UCLA, I took a year-long course in gerontology. It was very interdisciplinary, focused on kind of the social and demographic changes that were happening in the United States and globally. And then also there was a lot of information on the aging process, the aging mind, the aging body. And then another component was working with older adults in the community and also doing kind of a story review of an older adult in your life. And I chose my grandfather. And it was just really an amazing deep dive into all the different facets of gerontology and and got me really interested in pursuing aging as a career And then when I graduated from UCLA, my first job out of college was working as a research assistant in geriatric psychiatry, where I was doing studies of older adults who had depression and the treatment was Tai Chi um, or a health education class. So it's just another way, another introduction into gerontology and working with older adults.
1: And it sounds like you're very passionate and interested in specifically how older adults can be financially abused. So I'd love to hear more about how that interest came about. And then I think it would be helpful to sort of define that more for our audience. Um, Is this a form of elder abuse? And kind of what does that look like?
2: Right. So financial fraud targeting older adults is a form of elder abuse, specifically elder financial exploitation, um, assuming that the target of fraud is vulnerable. So just because a person is old chronologically doesn't necessarily mean it's elder abuse. At least that's the definition in uh, some states. In others, it's as long as you're over 60 or age 65. I became interested in financial exploitation during my graduate studies as a graduate student Where I worked in a lab focused on elder abuse and the risk factors and protective factors for elder abuse. But the cases that really stood out to me were the ones where the perpetrator was not actually a close friend or family member, where it was a stranger. And it just got me thinking, you know, how do scammers or fraud criminals? deliberately target older adults or do they even deliberately target older adults? What is it about the aging process that might make an individual more or sometimes even less likely to be susceptible to a scam? And what are the different pathways of intervention that might be effective for scams versus financial abuse where the perpetrator is a family member or friend, someone who's known to the older adult and has a pre-existing relationship with them.
1: In your experience, whether that's, this is through your own research or kind of current research that's out there, how prevalent is financial victimization in the aging population? And on top of that, are there particular demographic groups that are more susceptible?
2: This has been a really challenging question for researchers and policymakers, particularly because victims themselves, and it's true for elder abuse as well, don't typically report their own victimization. So it often is a third party or another concerned family member or friend who's reporting the crime. Some studies have found that it's around 1 in 18 older adults are victims of financial exploitation each year. I think it's similar for fraud fraud. A general population survey of fraud found that 15% of the U.S. population of adults has been a victim of a scam in the past year. Lower rates, actually, for older adults, closer to 7% or so. The caveat there is that older adults may be less likely to self-report fraud when they're asked about it in a survey. That's due to a number of reasons, either... They don't recognize that it happened, maybe due to cognitive impairment, or they feel embarrassed, um, more embarrassed than a younger person might be, because the stakes are higher for them. Like if their friends and family members knew that they were victims, they might try to take away their financial autonomy.
1: I think most of us are familiar with something like a scam phone call. We, most of us probably receive a lot of those ourselves. But I, I think the kinds of tactics that can be used are probably pretty broad. I know in my own family, my grandmother had like in-home care and there ended up being an issue when they both went to her safety deposit box together. So I think this can look a lot of different ways. Uh, in your experience, what kinds of tactics tend to be used?
2: Fraud criminals typically use some of the same marketing tactics that are used in the legitimate consumer marketplace. In many cases, particularly the more extreme fraud cases where there's a higher dollar loss or the fraud goes on for longer, the perpetrator has created a close personal relationship with the victim, even a dependency. And you know, that looks a lot like financial exploitation. They've, they might have started out as a stranger, like a home care provider in your family, but they ended up being someone who the older adult turns to for care or even emotional support. Other tactics, you know, include emotional arousal, especially in scams where the goal of the perpetrator is to see how much money they can get from this person all in one instance So you can think about a lot of the government imposter scams or the grandparent scams where it does typically come in as a phone call and they try to get the person to be feeling fear or being intimidated and try to get them to act right away. So urgency is another really popular one. This is also really common in Scams where it's not a negative threat that the person's receiving, but it's a positive rewarding opportunity, like a windfall of money, a great investment that they should get in early, like on the ground floor of um, a lottery or a prize or a sweepstakes. And the bottom line is you better act fast. Like if you don't do this now, These consequences will happen, like you'll lose your chance at winning this lottery, or your grandchild will be harmed, for example. So, urgency and and that act now is really popular in scams. Another one is isolating the older adult from their friends and family members, anyone that could interrupt the scam. So scammers and criminals will typically tell the person, you know, this is just between us. You can't tell anyone, even if it's like a romance scam. They'll say your family won't understand this relationship. You know, they'll try to tell you things about me that aren't real, that aren't true. And then in, you know, government imposter grandparent scams, it could be, you know, if you tell anybody about this, we're going to do something really terrible. So that privacy, that secrecy is key for the fraud criminals, because they know that the sooner someone else enters the picture, their whole ruse will be shattered and the, and the older adult will be, you know, taken away from their control.
1: So there's definitely a lot of scary tactics out there that are being used. What should we be doing to address those, um, specifically when we're um, talking to perhaps older adults, older family members in our own lives?
2: So older adults are typically the targets of fraud and scam education and awareness campaigns. And I think one clever way would be to flip the script instead of telling them what they should be doing or how to avoid scams. It'd be really interesting to say, you know, I've been targeted a lot on the phone. Like I keep getting these robo calls. Like, what is your plan on this? What do you do when you receive these calls? So almost allowing them to educate you, kind of this reverse education, and hear their strategies for resisting fraud. And that'll also point out any gaps, you know, like, oh, you know, you know, mom or grandma, you don't actually have to respond to every email (laughs) that comes in or, you know, you pick up the phone, you know, if I don't recognize the number, I usually just let it go, you know, because if it's important, they'll leave a voicemail and the voicemail will be a real person, it won't be a, you know, a robot. (laughs) So things like that, just ask them their strategies. And I think all of us, the important thing for us, everyone to remember is that we're all susceptible to some type of scam. If you haven't been a victim yet, just wait a while. You know, there will be something that gets you, whether it's something posted on like Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, or even in the real world, you know, door to door magazine sales, like you might find a week, someone might find your weakness. So we all need to have our own plan for resisting scams, pausing, taking a breath, getting a second opinion from someone you trust, all of those strategies are really helpful.
1: I love the concept of kind of having someone else or encouraging them to tell you about what they're doing in those kinds of situations. And, you know, given your role at the university, um, I'm assuming this is the case, but what do you envision in terms of larger scale changes you hope will occur to promote overall safety and security for our aging population financially or otherwise?
2: So Madeline, I don't think we're ever gonna stamp out fraud. People have found a way to cheat the marketplace for as long as it's existed. Like we don't have the snake oil salesman going door to door anymore. It's all mass marketing. It uses voice over internet protocol and really sophisticated you know, techniques to hide where the call is coming from or fake caller ID or email addresses. So it's always going to be there. (laughs) But I do think we can do things to make ourselves more resilient and create more robust strategies. And a lot of them have to come from private sector innovation, in my opinion. Like, I think about early on when we all first got email and how much spam mail we got. And now if you use Gmail and you open it up, you probably don't see much fake mail. It might be things that you've subscribed to that wish you hadn't. But you're not getting outright spam mail into your normal inbox anymore. And that was a private sector innovation. Um, Things like the likely scam call or scam warning that comes up on our cell phones now when someone calls us you know, that might not protect everyone. Some people will still pick up the phone. But for many of us, it's that first little warning, like, if you are going to pick up, you know, just beware that this has been flagged as a potential scam. So certainly, the private sector can do more in this space, you know, prevent us from even getting those fraudulent calls in the first place. And those are things they're working on more, you know, and that has to maybe come from some federal regulation, too. Um, And then, you know, also text messages. How do those get filtered out when they're fraudulent? And then, of course, government has a big role to play in kind of investigating these crimes when they occur, especially for elder abuse and elder financial crimes in general. We need a, a more commitment from prosecutors to go after these crimes. We need to find a way that... Um, you know, care providers who've committed, or who have are suspected of financial exploitation of the people who they care for are not reemployed in those positions. Um, And just get the whole system to be more interested in treating these, these instances as a crime, not as just a civil issue between a family, you know, issues with a family, but actually a crime.
1: That's so fascinating, Dr. DeLima. I really appreciate you sharing your expertise on that um, in terms of what you envision and hope for. And lastly, just as we wrap up here, um, most of our listeners are students, um, undergraduate, graduate students. Do you have any general advice for these students who might be interested in pursuing careers in this field?
2: So the field of elder justice is so diverse and multidisciplinary, which makes it amazing because you can approach it from so many different angles. So, you know, elder law is one example. Um, Another is uh, social work is really important. Um, Social workers are pivotal in helping older victims recover. Also, You know, there's federal agencies that work in, you know, addressing crimes and and crimes. Cybersecurity is another one. I mean, there's really so many ways to approach elder justice.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. DeLima. That wraps up our conversation. Um, I really appreciate you speaking with me today. Yes, thank you.
0: This podcast is brought to you by ASIC, the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. We are a collaborative networking group for students studying aging across the university. Stay tuned for the next episodes of Voices of Aging, where you learn more about aging through experts.